We are live. Stay tuned, stay tuned, stay tuned. I'm here with the great coach, John Brett. And I'm here with the great vet, Mr. Ian Griffin from Pittsburgh, Texas. Look at here. What do we got? Man, we got some characters today. So, Coach, I'm going to let you introduce the first one because I know you know him. And I'm going to introduce the second one. Let's talk a little bit about him here real quick, if you don't mind. I don't use these terms very often, but I'm going to use the word honored. I am so honored right now to have this guy here. When I was growing up, this guy was someone that, that I looked up to. I don't even think he knows it as much, but he was one of my coaches, one of our teachers in the hallway, always trying to keep us corralled. Uh, he actually wrote something in my eighth grade. I'm not going to get into it as personal. He wrote something in my eighth grade annual that still to this day is one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me, and I'll never forget it. So we have Coach David Ingram here. Used to be in Pittsburgh, now in Huntsville. What's going on, Coach? Oh, not much. I've been talking to the rest of them, you know. I've retired now, so just kind of taking it easy most of the time. Doing a little subbing every once in a while and all. Uh, when uh want to show a picture here, see if you happen to recognize that number 55. Wow, look at that. I was the second tallest one. Pete Peters was about seven foot nine, it looked like. <laughs> he was he was tall. And how'd you like those shorts now? Those hey, I'm thinking right now we need to bring those shorts back. Real men wear those shorts. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, the style there. I saw Charles Peters yesterday. He's still that tight, that high. I can tell you that. What about these guys? Oh, now, my gosh. Now, here's the other one. If, if you notice, if you look at, let's uh, see, number four, <laughs> they're in your program. That would be Ian. Man, and I was the smallest got, guy there. <laughs> I was fixing to say, I've you were the smallest one that played that year, I know, and you're pretty close to the smallest one that I've ever had play for me in all my years of coaching. Yeah, so uh, I, I just remember this is uh, I was way too small to be playing football, but I had heart. I didn't have anything yep. else, no form of talent whatsoever, just all heart. So it's good to have you no, on coach. here, Coach. All right, it's great to be here. I'm glad y'all asked me. So, Coach John Brent and Coach Ingram, I got also here a guy that I served with, Alexander Oliveira Rodriguez, who we served in Afghanistan together. A great guy. I'm going to put some pictures up after he talks here in a minute. He's going to explain them here in a minute. But uh, we got the opportunity to go to Afghanistan and just do some interesting stuff. And I have an interesting story. Go ahead, Alex. It's good to have you on here. What do you got, man? Oh, thank, thanks for uh, inviting me. You know, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, nice meeting everybody. Uh, my name is Alexander Olivieri. I'm retired from the military, just like you. And right now I'm just living life, you know. Even though, I'm, I, yes, I'm only 36 years old, I'm retired, and now I'm the owner of Woodpecker Flax and Crabs, you know. Uh, and the picture you see there, that is where everything started, just a unfinished garage, you know, with nothing but dust and barely any electricity going. And now, you know, it has turned into a fully functional shop. We ship worldwide. 
we we do it all uh, right now who can say that working from the garage they can make six figures so you know I'm, i've been blessed you know me and my wife you know we've been uh working hard and uh, hopefully pretty soon that entire shop that you'll see right there in that picture will be in that actual building where we're going to be moving to that way we can serve the local people well so I got an interesting story with, with, with Alex here, and he's going to love this story. And we talked a little bit about it. So when we was in Afghanistan, you see these videos that are made by soldiers and Navy men when you're in Afghanistan. Well, when you're in charge, you, you like seeing other people's videos like that, but you don't want to see them of your own unit because then you have to do things. So he made a video of – you can give us the title here, Alex, but here's part the of it. Right? Style. When the Gundam style was all uh, – it was a hit. Yeah. And uh, it was incredible. But I had to put my star major hat and act a complete ass about this thing, to be quite honest. Although inside I was laughing my butt off, to be quite frank with you. And uh, uh, but he never knew that. I just gave him a lot of rash of crap and told him he had to do a whole bunch of things because of it and such. But it was all good. It brought the morale up. It was good for the unit. But just let you know, the colonel at the time, I won't mention her name. She got stars on her and I. We laughed about it off the side. So anyway, it's good to have everybody on here. So, Coach, what do we got going on here today? Well, I know we've got a few topics that we're going to talk about, and I don't have my itinerary in front of me. I don't know what happened to it. I can't find it. But I do believe the first thing we're going to talk about, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, we're going to talk about critical race theory. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's something that has come up big in the last, I'd say, decade more than before. Um, you know, actually kind of started in the 70s and 80s, but I want to kind of get that started and, and, and ask Alex, what do you think when you just hear about the term, you know, a lot of people just call it CRT if we want to shorten it, but critical race theory, what, what do you think about it? Uh, which side of, you know, of the thought process you're on, uh, you know, with, with the critical race theory? Well, to be honest to you, I have never heard of that term until recently. So then I started doing some digging on my own, trying to learn a little bit about it. Um, and I understand where they're coming to, even though at the end of the day, you know, and, and I know that what they're trying to do is bring it to school. That way they can teach everybody. I'm assuming where we all equals, regardless of race, color, gender, you know, sexual prefer uh, preference or anything like that. Um, but unfortunately, even though it will reach some people, the main way that that all this is gonna change is starting at home, you know. And that's where I try to, you know, do with my kids. You know, is is making sure that they are fair with everybody, that treat everybody the same, because uh, we we cannot just let the schools teach everything. We you know, especially when it comes to values and you know that we have to live by it has to come from home they they only follow by example because they're kids they're sponges and if they see you acting a certain way they're gonna repeat that you know i had uh some instances you know where my son uh even uh, so before we even go and get to that part of the story uh, for the ones that don't know my wife she's actually white you know, and all of our kids together, they don't look anything Puerto Rican. They look just a little bit of tan white people. You know, so uh, one day, you know, my, my son, four-year-old, he was, you know, he was five years at, at that time. 
you know, he's like acting all tough and everything. I was like, oh man, what? Uh, uh, you're a thought now, you know, uh, you're a talk. And he's like, no, hey, I'm not black. So I'm like, whoa, 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 hold your horses. Where, where this came from? You know, and then he tells me another kid and his buzz, you know, say stuff like that. So that's when my part is like, no, that's not how it works. You know, that is just generalization that people have put on black people or whatever the, the case might be. So that's what I'm saying. The CR, CRT, you know, my uh, work to a certain extent, but at the end of the day, it's just what we do at home. Yeah, and Alex, I want to agree with you. And before I turn it over to Coach uh, Coach Ingram, is yeah, I mean, what we have done is we've allowed society to parent our kids and teach them when we used to do that at home. We set the values, we set the standard at home. Now we actually have the government trying to mandate some of the stuff, and we allow it, or they have to have it in your job as a training, uh, or they have to have it at your school as a subject to teach. When you know, what, whatever happened to parents parenting and teaching, you know, about those things? What do they don't think parents can do that? I mean, I guess in their last 10 or 15 years, it looks like they're taking everything out of the parents' hands and saying, you know, the government and the school system will do everything that the parents used to do and should do. So, Coach Ingram, I know you come from a generation where you taught us. And one of the things that I really am happy about that I had a foundation for my parents and not only my parents, but also, you know, friends' parents that would kind of community teach us what was right and wrong and something like this. And now it seems like for some reason, the government thinks we're just stupid now. Yeah, that's kind of the way I was looking at it. I'd say the, the critical race theory, again, I've heard a little, little bit about it. I had to look up some of it myself to see what it is. It seems they're doing, a, or to me, they want to put everything has to do with race. That, everything in the United States is racist all the way back to when you go to the 1619 project and all that, that, you know, yes, there, there, you know, our history, there's been mistakes, you know, that we did. There's no country that didn't have mistakes and how their history goes. But it to me, it seems the more that I look in the news and, and watch things that are going on that in some parts they're trying to almost go back to the fifties. In some cases it looks like they're going, you know, saying that it's more like going to a segregation as you're having, uh, they're saying they can't get their justice from the legal system that is set in racist. And so they need to try to change, which yes, we need change. And, you know, but like you were saying, they want the, the schools to teach it and the government, as in the federal government, my understanding, you know, they're pushing that. And the best that I can remember and coach, you can correct me on that if I'm wrong, but I don't think education is one of those rights or responsibilities that the federal government has. If I recall in, I think it's the 10th Amendment, all the powers that are not delegated to the federal government belongs to the states. And one of those is education. Now, if the state of Texas wants to teach this, and even if they wish to do it, I would hope that they would talk to the public 
talk to the parents and see if this is something that they want. Again, as Alexander said, and now you said, it starts in the home. And I've seen it in 40 years of teaching. Your, your parents, John, and your parents, Ian, were a whole lot different than the parents that I face now. A whole lot different, you know. And that's part of what we're working with, you know, that people delegate their responsibility to the school or to someone else. And it needs to start in the home. Yeah. And before I pass it over to the vet, the last thing I'll say on this is, I mean, and one of the things that I like to, you know, kind of unpack it a little bit is, and there's words that are being used today that, that divide us. And there, I believe there, there are two dividers that we don't really want to sit down and have the conversation about. Last week, we had a great conversation with Kirk being on here. Someone has a totally different perspective than us. And that's what we like to have. But, you know, words like systematic racism, unconscious bias, social justice, white privilege, white fragility. These are words that are being used so much in the media. And when I talk to people, they don't even know what they mean. It's not it's not it's like they're talking points. There's not actually people sit down and go, OK, let me teach you what I'm thinking about unconscious bias and conscious bias. And let's discuss it. It's like we have these academic words that we use to make us sound more intelligent than we are instead of actually having a conversation. We sit in the dirt and draw out a play and go, that's what we're going to do. You know, and those are the those are those are the kind of things I think we need is we need to get back to the drawing board of people actually talking and not being divided. So, Vet, you tell me what you think. I can't wait to hear what you think. You know, this coming. So, we got uh, a good friend of mine I served with, uh, Kendall Elam, who's uh, from down there close to Houston area also. He just hit me up on some things. And I'm going to hit those up here, too. But first of all, critical race theory, um, a couple of things I want to talk about on it is I'm okay with us if it goes through the state, like you say in Coach Ingram, if it goes to the state, it goes to the school board for the state of Texas or the state of Virginia, not where it is civil rights scholars and activists, but where it is doctorate historians review it and bless off on it and we pass it and vote for it. I'm okay with that uh, because me being a, a master's in history, I will say that, that in Kingdom, I saw your comment, history is history period. It is unblemished and it is dirty and it is ugly. The thing is, is sometimes we choose not to show all its ugliness. That is some of the challenge. There's some of the ugliness we need to show. That's a fact. Does it need to take the precedence of everything? No, I don't agree with that either. I think though that it needs to sit before a panel of historians that have been educated enough in the field, not activists, not civil rights leaders, historians, because that's the field we're talking about. And then we approach it there. The second thing I will say is there's a curriculum that was passed about this for a private school, not a public school, where you had the teacher and you had the principal. And the question was asked, are we demonizing kids? Well, if we're taking a curriculum where you're demonizing kids, aren't we just doing what we did almost 150 years ago or during the civil rights movement? Aren't we doing the same thing? is we're just flipping it around, just choosing a different race to, to throw it at. So I don't agree with that. And the principal said, yeah, in reality, we are. We're demonizing white kids because part of the critical race theory is founded on that only white supremacy, that there's white supremacy, which there has been forms of that throughout time. That's no doubt. 
But there's been forms of supremacy today from all various factions and all ethnicities. It's not just stoked on one. So is that something we teach there? Probably, I don't know. So the other thing I have is there's a, there's a website called criticalrace.org. In this criticalrace.org, they list all the universities and colleges in the state of Texas. I mean, in, in the country, excuse me, there's 200 of them that teach critical race theory. I have no problem with it being taught there. You're paying for that class, you go to it. I have a problem where you institutionalize it at a public school at the high school and below level. That I have Brief. a problem with. Unless it is passed by a school board of education with historical people making the decision on it because you're teaching about historic for that state. So if you're going to pay for it, so be it. So in the state of Texas, there's nine colleges and universities. Half of them are private colleges, but they're nine private, they're, they're nine colleges and universities. In your state, Alex, there's 11. We got a population almost twice size a year, and you got 11 colleges teaching it. Even a community college teaches it, you know, but whereas in the state of Texas, we have nine. So that, that's just, I thought that was an interesting fact. Uh, I, I agree that our history does not tell everything, but I can also tell you this, in the state of Texas, I can run across a handful of seniors today and ask them if they know anything about the Alamo. And if you don't think Texas history is taught in the state of Texas, you're sadly mistaken. And half of them won't even tell me what the hell happened at the Alamo. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. Two things real quick before we move on on this, and then we'll get Coach and Alexander back on it is, and one of the things that you touched on, are there unbiased historians in the 21st century today? That's a question we have to ask because you want to have unbiased historians sit down and say, okay, this is what history is, or this is what we need to teach. Are there really unbiased people in the 21st century? I don't really know many unbiased people when it comes to politics anymore. So that's going to be a, an issue that someone's going to, going to have. And this is the way the last question I like to throw it to you guys is, and if so, would either side allow a true historian to teach or would they say if they didn't teach what they thought was true history, would they call that biased? Alexander, go ahead. Um, to think that there's actually unbiased uh, historians, uh, I, I think it's, it's hard to find. Um, and in, the, in cases like that, you know, I totally agree with Ian, you know, when he was talking about uh, if they're going to do this curriculum, they have to have historians, you know, people who have dedicated their lives, you know, to study this, not just people who are uh, going out of their, you know, their feelings, you know. So to find actually biased historians is going to be hard. That's why when uh, building this team, they have to find the, the correct balance. You know, they got to be people from the both sides. That way they can neutralize each other, you know, you know, and actually work with facts. That way they can build what is actually going to help our society, our future generations, you know, to come with these uh, issues that we have nowadays. Yeah, and I totally agree. I mean, sometimes we don't have an unbiased panel. We have, you know, two different sides of, you know, Buster's last stand. Somebody might look at it differently if a Native American than that they would if they're an actual U.S. American. And so, Coach Ingram, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, 
part of it, I would think, at least my experience or what I know of, you're not going to find too many unbiased college professors, period. Doesn't matter. You know, there's not a lot of them. I mean, I would say 90% of them lean to the left and some of them lean way to the left. Okay. The only way that you could try to get this done. And as Alexander was saying, the way our country was founded on compromise, the way the constitution was written on compromise, you get both sides and surely somewhere there's got to be, you know, a little give and take. That's what I would tell my students. When you compromise, you, you get part of what you want. You may not get all of what you want, but then the other person gets part of they, what they want and you put it together. I'm just not sure. Do we have enough people that will want to compromise? Cause it seems today, every time that you see anything on Facebook or even on the news, it's my way or the highway, as they used to say in the coaching business, you know, and they refuse to listen to anything. So I don't know if we can get that part. I don't know if we're going to be this unifying country that they want us to be. Not until people realize we're all, as they say, we're all in this together, you know, and we've got to work together or we're all going to go down. As they say, if we'll hang by ourselves or we'll hang alone, but you better get together and work. Yeah, the art of compromise is something that this generation uh, is, is having a hard time with. And when you actually study history and go back to the beginning of the, of the country, there's a whole lot of difference of opinions from the, the you know, the, from the Federalists to the Anti-Federalists. But what they did is they locked themselves in room, but they locked themselves in debate and conversation to figure out, hey, I need a little bit of this and you did a little bit of this and let's come together. Today, it seems like if you have an opinion and you have to somehow give a little bit then you feel like you're giving up your whole ideology and it's a fight. That's not what America should be about. It's not what it was about, but now we're in the 21st century. It's like, if you don't win the argument and win something, then the other person is, is going to have an ism or racism or some kind of phobia. And you have somehow dropped the ball of your, um, your ideology. Then, then you're looked as less by, by some people when it's okay to compromise. It's okay to give a little bit vet. So one thing I will say is, is uh, when, when I pursued my, my history, master's in history, I had, had a mentor that was downstairs in my headquarters. Shame on me. I had a doctor down there that was uh, managed the archives for tar TACOM. And, uh, but she really stressed to me, she goes, you know, you're, when you write your master's and when you go further than that in history, and I agree with you, Coach Ingram, that there's a lot of liberalism within the professor field at colleges. I 100% agree with that. But one thing she says, she goes, you lose your credibility. And she goes, every historian knows which ones have lost their credibility when they write something that they didn't document the right way. And one of the things that I'll say about the historians that write pieces that are actually historically factual, they have to do so much research to go find it, quantify it, to verify it, to validate it, to, to ensure that it was there. The second they didn't do one validation, you know, Coach John Brent knows it, Coach Ingram knows it, Alexander knows it, everybody in the field knows that it's not there. I would hope, and, and I know that's a loose term, 
I would hope we would have some just like the one I had downstairs, Dr. Johnston, who was dead set on that, that she would go, don't use that source because in and, and the, the courses I was taking, they would tell you, don't use sources from this person because their credibility is shot. Even though they're a doctor, their credibility is shot. And that's what I would hope we'd have on the panel. I agree. It is hard to find people today that are unbiased. It, it, is, it really is. But I, I will say the regiment that I went through through my history program, I had the main objective the whole time, even though I wanted this as an end state for my paper, I couldn't necessarily get that unless I got it the right way. That's just something I'll throw out there. So anyway, go ahead, coach. I think this is, I think this is a good wrap up for this topic. I mean, like I said, it's not an easy subject, but you know what? I really think that what coach said about compromise, I think what Alexander said that we need to, you know, work together starts at the house. I mean, these are things that should be foundational and, and fundamental in what we do and talk about. We got to keep the government and universities out as much as possible and let that come back to the, the you know, the home, the parents and the community actually teaching and showing and, and nurturing people and our kids. And, and I think we can do that. I think we'll, we'll be a better country. So yeah, I bet you go ahead. Okay. So real quick, I got to throw a little paid advertisement out there because, you know, we got to make our pennies somehow. So, so you know, come see us on Coaching the Vet. Get some of this stuff because this is what pays for our podcast, to be quite honest with you. And uh, we appreciate it if you do. Moving along, it's time for subject number two tonight, which we're going to talk about Micaiah Bryant at Columbus and uh, the incident that involved the knife. And it also involved uh, a police officer arriving at the scene having a few seconds to evaluate the scene, the turmoil happens at his feet, and he makes a decision. And I'm going to just start off with you, Alex. What do you think about all this here? There's been a whole lot of hoopla in the news about it. And, uh, you know, that this is a form of racism. The officer should have shot the knife uh, or shouldn't have shot at all. So what do you think, Alex? Uh, this is a very touchy subject uh, for many uh, reasons. First, it just happened to be the same day the the George Floyd case was pretty much being verdict, you know, where uh, the officer was found guilty for excessive force during the, uh, George Floyd's arrest, which ended up with him being dead. So it was it was already right there started with extremely bad timing. Now I saw the video, you know, and I actually saw the body cam video. You know, where pretty much you can get the sense of timing and the situation itself, it was a no-win situation regardless. And regardless of what was the outcome of that situation would happen, there was only one person who was going to be blamed and it was going to be the officer. And this is why I say this. Uh, totally agree. You, uh, you can see where he's driving, you know, he's responding to the call. Where you know allegedly you know I don't know if this part is true or not, but where the girl actually the one who got shot called the police, so he already is responding to a call. He doesn't have a picture where it says who calls, you know, and this is the person you gotta go talk to, you know, to solve the situation. He just knows somebody called, and there's a bunch of people, and there's an altercation, so he responds. You can see it as soon as he gets out, there's two ladies in front of a car and they're pointing. And within a split of a second, you see another girl rolling down the grass and a male figure 
kicking that girl in the head. And then I don't know where you see already the girl who got shot on top of the girl with, uh, with a pink. It, all this happens, I will say, no more than 10 seconds. You know, and so it's a split decision. You either hesitate and the girl on the pink is going to get stabbed and is going to get killed, or you take reaction at that precise moment and hope to injure just the attacker, but, you know, you're just trying to stop the situation, defuse the situation. You know, people are like, you should, uh, the cop should have talked, uh, should have, you know, should, should know, uh, there's no way he could have shot four times. I was like, and, and that split of a second, you're not going one, two, okay, that, that's enough shot. You're just reacting. You just go, that adrenaline is going through your veins like there's no, there's no tomorrow. He just tried to stop the situation, which he did. Unfortunately, there was going to be always one uh, victim. It was either going to be the girl who actually died or the girl in the pink. So there, and unfortunately, I, I think there was a no-win situation. I don't, me personally, I don't think, you know, it was based on on racism or anything like that. At the end of the day, I'm not in that cop's head. But based on the footage that I saw, you know, I, I think it was just a no-win situation. And I think he, he did the right thing. Alex, I, 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 I agree. I don't think he had a lot of time to react. And if you think about it, I think they said he had nine seconds when he got there. I'm going to come to you here in a second, Coach Ingram, but he had like nine seconds. But if you look at the video, when that turmoil happened at his feet between the guy and the gal, and then she got up, he had about a second. And I've heard stories about, uh, well, he should have shot the, the, the knife out of the hand. You and I both shot guns an awful lot. And I'm telling you, on my best day in a second time, and I'm good at shooting when I'm shooting from reaction. To be quite honest, if I shoot out of reaction, I shoot very good. If I said, think about it a while ago, but there was a lot of distraction all around him at his feet and everything else for him to execute what we want a Superman to do, to be honest, you know, in my mind. So I'm going to throw it over to you to Coach Ingram. Oh, go ahead, Alex. What do you got? I have one more thing. Like, a, a, other, a the most common excuses or uh, things that people say that should happen is like, well, he, he's he should have just shot her in the arm, shot her in the legs. And me, with my background as a mortician, trust me, those usually are, are the most fatal, you know, shots. Because once you hit an artery, that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, so to people say, like, hey, you shoot him in the leg, shoot him in the arm. Trust me, that is just as fatal as getting shot in the heart, getting shot in the chest. Uh, and, and in my 16 years of experience as a mortician, most of you know a lot of the people that, that carry my hands that were dead, it was, they were shot either in the armpit, in the groin, you know, in, in places that is nowhere near the heart. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Coach Ingram. What do you got? Okay. Well, of course, I agree with both of y'all on part of it. I mean, I'd say it was a no-win situation. If he hesitates, the girl in the pink gets stabbed and she may die, and they'll blame him for that. So if he shoots the girl, the young girl, in with the knife, he gets blamed for that. There's not much you could know. One way or the other, he's going to be at fault. And, you know, 
as Alexander was saying that some people say, well, he, he should have shot, shot the knife out of her hand, or he should have shot her in the arm. And some people, they said, well, he should have shot in the air. And I told my wife, I said, these people never heard of gravity. When it goes up, it's going to come down and it's not going to float down like a leaf. It's going to hit somebody. I said, and every law enforcement official that I've ever talked to, they are taught to shoot to the torso. You shoot at the biggest target, you know, and okay, a split second. Who knows what anybody else would have done, but you see someone with a knife and they're after somebody else. And she already says she was going to stab that blankety blank blank that she was going to get her. And whether she was the one that called her uh, the phone or not called it in. Nobody knows that part or the policeman certainly didn't. You see somebody fixing to kill somebody. You have to take action. There's no, nothing you could do. You have to take that action for it. My, you know, and he's, uh, as far as I could tell and anybody else has said, he's, she was justified in doing it. You know, at least for the facts I know now, what's building it up to me is these people are saying that he murdered her. No, he didn't murder her. He killed her in the act of protecting someone else, but that's not murder. He just, he did what he had to do. You know, he, you know, you can't talk them down on somebody like that. You're going to talk while they're lunging. That's not going to work, you know, and we just use this again, a white officer, an African-American person, and they build that up, said it was purely racial, or they said she was a big girl and they adultified her because she was big. Okay. Well, not to be crass, but if a 16 year old stabs you or a 60 year old stabs you, you're still just as dead. Okay. It doesn't matter. Now, if it's a five year old, that's different. But once you're 16, you know what you're doing. And she was stabbed that girl. Maybe more than once. We don't know. Or at least cut her. So, you know, he's going to have to live with that, which I guess every officer does when they shoot somebody. If they kill somebody, they all have to live with it to realize what they've done. But, you know, it's going to just, they keep going up and saying it's another one of these white officer kills an African-American. You know, well, they can't say she wasn't armed. She did have a knife, you know, so there was a reason for her to do, for him to do what he did. You know, Co coach, I, I don't dispute any of that. I'm going to throw it over to coach John Brent. I'm going to touch on that last part you talked about at the end uh, a little bit, because uh, that there is a narrative out there for that. And it, it's fed in a certain way. I'm also going to answer Kendall's uh, from my perspective. Kendall's question he threw on here, but go ahead, Coach John Brent. What do you got? Well, I'll agree right off the bat with what Alexander said. The timing was terrible. I mean, what's been going on? Uh, this got put into a box with the others when this was actually a separate type of uh, situation. If you watch the video, you, you see the stills. There's a six-inch blade that is being picked up like this to be stabbed against a person that has a backup against the vehicle, and they're going to be stabbed with a six-inch blade. And if you're the officer, you don't have, I mean, if you pull a taser out, if you tase somebody, you think that's just going to stop the arm? I mean, you're going to continue with that motion if you use some kind of taser. The officer at that point had to make the judgment. Do I 
shoot her or allow her to be stabbed. And like you said, Alexander, there's this is a no win situation, especially with the officer uh, pulling up and this just happening so quick. I mean, if he doesn't shoot the girl and she gets stabbed in the neck, the first thing you're going to hear is police are not trained to take care of its citizens. They allow this to happen. Uh, one of the things that I'll have to say, police officers and even soldiers are not Billy the Kid. I mean, we're not Jesse James, Billy the Kid shooting guns out of people's hands. Because what's going to happen if you start trying to shoot a gun out of someone's hand? What about the innocent bystanders that are around in the neighborhood behind it? Are you kidding me? We're going to this person. You have to give them personal responsibility. She was the one that picked up the knife to stab someone. So if anybody's going to get shot, it needs to be her. I mean, it sounds terrible to say it that way, but it doesn't need to be someone behind them. child, And it doesn't need to be like you shot up in the air and it's going to come down to the neighbor's house. The bystanders are, are innocent. Now, the last thing I'm going to touch on, and I'm going to leave this alone, let y'all back and forth, is what we have to stop doing is having celebrities, newscasters, sports stars coming out before evidence comes out and say, hashtag accountability, your next posting pictures of this officer, like it was, uh, you know, Derek Chauvin on top of uh, George Floyd. We, we know that's a murderer. And he was just convicted of because he was a murderer and putting this guy in. What is he next on LeBron? What was he next? What's he next? Are you going to protest his house? You're going to burn down the, the city. What do you mean you're next? When someone actually saved a life, they saved this lady in the pink's life is what he did. And now we're going to come out emotionally and say you're next. Yeah. He pulled the tweet down because he said it was creating hate. No, what created hate was you, LeBron. You created more hate and division instead of, you know, we need more people together. So y'all better get me. I'm going to get fired up on LeBron, so I'm going to let y'all have this. I'm going to throw it over to Alex. He, he raised his hand, and I'm going to hit it real quick here. Go ahead. No, and, and, and another thing is, like, these people were in their own house, you know, when they called the police. So why you even entertain? If somebody's at your doorstep, they're not inside your house, so why even open up to get yourself put into that position? You know, you're already in, in a safe place. You know, now if these people are actually broke your door, came inside, trying to attack you, you have all the rights to go wielding a knife. You know, I, I'll probably get like the, the biggest, you know, knife I got in my a knife set and just start chopping hands. You know, because now they're inside my property, they're inside my house. They're, you know, I, I have the right to defend myself and my family. But for you to be in a safe space, and to open your door and go outside, you know, that, that decision right there was a bad call. So I got a few things here. And first thing I want to talk about is just some experience in the military and, and firing a lot and being around things that nobody likes to brag about. And it's not fun. But so first of all, the, the comment from Joey Bayar, the shooting the air. Okay, Joey Bayar, go play with a gun for a while. Uh, come back to the rest of us and get to reality. Like everybody's pointed out, that bullet comes down. There's been many people who have died from that bullet coming down. And let it be a five-year-old kid that had nothing to do with this at all. You know, that officer would never have a career again. And his job is to serve and protect. And he did just that. The second thing is, is what you talked about, Coach John Brent, and, and it kind of leads into the tail end of yours, Coach Ingram stuff, is – it wasn't in 24 hours. The press secretary of the, of the president of the United States comes out 
said we the systematic racism da 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 and all this other such. And this is my deal: is we chopped a narrative. You had the Chauvin case come out, and everybody said that there would not be a fair trial, and he was found guilty on all counts, as we all knew he would. But we said that that wouldn't happen because you can't get that in America because the justice system is systematic racist. The second, right before that trial was released, you had the Dante Wright case where the individual would be alive if he didn't flee. It didn't fit the narrative they tried to push. They pushed a false narrative again. And then third, you had this narrative, which we jump on it real quick and claim it's systematic racism. We get our words out first, hoping the world will believe us because we know how politics is. If I tell you the lie long enough, I expect you to believe it because I am speaking from authority. It was a lie. At the end of the day, a young police officer had nine seconds from the second he got there. And during those nine seconds, at seven and a half second mark, there was turmoil at his feet that would have thrown anybody for a loop where a disturbance was laying right at his feet, would have thrown anybody for a loop. And he executed professionally. And then the second thing with that, the question was, why didn't he use his taser? We can all be that Saturday morning police officer of 30 years of experience that's never served, just like we can all be that Monday morning quarterback, would have, should have, could have, maybe might have, might have done it or whatever. It don't do a damn bit of good because he was following his training and he saved a life. That's the bottom line is he saved a life. So, couple things happened out of this. It destroyed a narrative that's been, been pushed religiously. Why? Why is that narrative being pushed? Why can't it just be that a police officer saved a lot? Because that doesn't fit an agenda that's going on currently in politics. Second, why could we not just accommodate him? He needs accommodation because he saved that girl's life. On the other part, though, I'm here to tell you of all the naysayers that talk about why didn't he shoot once? Why didn't he shoot the knife? We talked a little bit about the knife, how hard that is in a second to shoot like that. And I will tell you, in my early part of my career, I shot very well. But I will also tell you that I've seen many people be on the receiving end of a bullet, and it ain't Hollywood. They don't fall down, even if it's a headshot. They do not fall down. So if you think that everything's portrayed in Hollywood is how it is, then you're wrong. I hate to say that. Hollywood does it for effect. They shoot the bullet a mile away. They fall down instantly for effect. We can move on with the storyline, but that doesn't happen in real life. People take a few of them to the torso and keep on moving. People take them in the head or miss, have some of their heads shot off and still keep moving. I mean, case in point is in LA where the police officer got shot in the face, still moved, still called 911, gurgled it the whole nine yards. So what the problem is, is a couple. We got a national agenda being pushed. Second, too many people believe Hollywood is gospel, not just of what they're talking about, but how they portray things in the movie. And you believe that shit. And then third, we have people with affluence from Hollywood sitting there putting a target on a police officer's back saying you're next. That is wrong as what we say in the Army is three dogs, you know what? It is wrong. Go ahead, Coach John Brent, because I'm about to lose my mind in here. Hey, I understand. One of the things that I did, I, I wanted to point out was we've heard what could we have done to save the, uh, the, the, the wielding knife lady, Miss Brown's life? Could we have shot her in the leg? Could we have shot it out of her hand? Could we have tased her? Could we have bum rushed her? 
Could we shot in the air? We have all these things of how to save her life. But what else has anybody brought up? What else could have been done to save the life of the victim besides what he did? Because we're not even talking about what else could we do to save the one in the pink that's about to be stabbed? Could somebody there help her? Uh, uh, I mean, personal responsibility has got to come into to this of not only the person that had the knife, but also the people around that allowed this to get out of control and out of hand. You're right. The person that made the call, I've heard the call. I don't know who made it. It doesn't matter who made it. There's a person out here wielding a knife. This, 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 Then why go outside? You call the police, stay in there, lock the door until the police get there. But you're going to go outside and fist fight in a knife fight. Are you kidding me? And so what else could have been done to save this girl's life besides him shoot her at that moment when he's coming down with it? What else could he have done? Coach, there was nothing else. When she was already in that motion, she was in the motion to come down. What else? Unless he wanted to kill two people, let her die, and then he had to shoot her anyhow. That was the only way for her to get stabbed and then do something. Yeah, that's what they want, I guess. And then they just say, well, he didn't act fast enough. And so you allowed somebody to get stabbed. Now you got two lives, and I guess they'd have two protests. I don't know. So, Coach, hey, man, I think this has been a good topic. I think we, 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 we covered it pretty well. I'm going to throw a quick commercial up here, and then we're going to hit the last topic here real quick. How's that sound? So back to the coaching event. Come to our website, coachinvent.com. Pick out some gear. That's how we pay for our podcast. Appreciate it very much. Now, the next question we got, next topic is an easy one. It's not controversial. All of us here have graduated high school at some point in our lives. I'd like to reflect on what we did then, what our thoughts were, and what advice do you have for the students that are going to graduate this May? And I'm going to throw it off with an old teacher and coach of ours that we've got a lot of respect for is old Coach Ingram. So go ahead, Coach. Okay. As I told you earlier, I had to I had to think on this a little bit because it's been – I figured up it's been 52 years since I graduated high school. It's a whole new world from, from when I graduated. And, I'll, and so because uh, I was like 1969 is when I graduated. Uh, I was probably, I guess maybe I was a little different than a lot of people perhaps, but I already, I had a good idea. I knew what I was going to do. It wasn't like sometimes people go to college and, you know, they wait two years before they do. I knew what I wanted to do is I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a history teacher. I loved history. And so I was going to college. You know, I already knew that that was my plan. It took me five years instead of four, but I did make it. Okay, so I followed through exactly what I needed. You know, I had my plan and did it. For this year's seniors, that's one of the things that I would suggest to them that I've heard this before. And like I say, I followed it myself. When you graduate or as you're getting close, and I have two grandsons that are graduating this year, which really makes me feel old, that uh, have a plan. You know, whatever, whatever you're going to do, have a plan. The old saying, if you, if you fail to plan, you're going to plan to fail. Okay. Whether you're going to go to college, whether you want to go into the military, whether you want to go and start working somewhere, go to trade school, have some type of plan. Yes, it may change. You know, it'll change from maybe change year to year, but at least you have a direction to go. And that's what, a lot of them or a lot the kids that I've seen sometimes they don't have a direction 
They don't know what they're going to do. Okay. And at least have some type of plan before you, once you graduate, so that you have an idea of what you're going to be doing. On a lighter side, kind of a lighter side, another thing I'd tell them to don't ever get a credit card. <laughs> don't, ever, don't ever get a, don't ever get a credit card. I, I even tell my, I told my seventh graders this at different times. I said, cause you'll start charging that thing. Guess what? At the end of the month, you got to pay for it. You know, that thing ain't free. So I said, whatever you do, don't get one till you got a job and you know, you can pay that thing off, you know, and hopefully some of them will listen to that because I learned that one the hard way too. When I was in college, I said, Nope, that's, I cut that one quick. You know, I don't even have a credit card now anymore. I don't play that game. So that would be my advice. Have a plan and don't ever get that silly credit card. Yep. Yep. I agree. Co Coach Ingram, I agree there. So I'm going to throw it over to you to Alex. What do you got? Well, in my case, uh, and this is a topic that I was actually talking with my wife and actually with my oldest son's mother uh, this past week. And in my case, I wish I was told when I before I got later that there's more than college. You know, we are in a society where pretty much they look down upon you if you don't have a college degree. Uh, everything is doctrinated to you need a college degree. A, even in the military, you cannot get promoted unless you have a college degree. You know, and that, that's one one thing I take close to heart because me, myself, I don't have a college degree. Um, never care for it. There's more than just college. There's, like uh, Coach was saying, there's also vocational, uh, there's trades, you know, and some of these trades actually make a whole lot of money more than, than somebody who has a master's or doctor's degree. Uh, and society needs that balance not everybody can be a lawyer not everybody can be a doctor not everybody can be a plumber nobody can be a woodworker you know so there's got to be that balance and i tell my kids all the time you know um the college is provided for you if you want to go to college i'll fully support you i'll be 100 percent behind you and support you throughout the road if you don't want to go to college you know and you want to follow a trade i am 100 percent behind you as well you know, as long as you're doing something honest for society, you know, that that's what it matters. So for people who are a, getting ready to graduate high school, have a plan. Don't just uh, wait, you know, and try to wing it um, because that is when the downfall is going to happen. That's when you're going to hit rock bottom because you see that everything is failing because you don't have a plan. And regardless, you go into the trade road or you go into your college road you got to have a plan there's got to be steps there's got to be goals that you got to reach in order to go to the next step to the next goal uh so you got to have a plan uh like coach say you know avoid at all costs getting in debt uh that's one thing i wish i knew you know unfortunately i didn't have that parental uh teachings like i tried to do with my kids you know, right now, my older son, he's like, well, can I, can you loan me $20? You know, and, and one time I did, 
I, you know, I loan him twenty dollars. You know, and he uh, he works in our shop. You know, that way he can make his money. And he's like, oh, uh, so uh, am I getting paid Friday? I'm like, no, you gotta pay your loan. And you, you can see his face. He went like, I'm like, yep. Welcome to society. Welcome to life. You know, where you have to pay what you get. You know, and you know, Absolutely. you only pay me twenty dollars. I gave you twenty dollars. You only pay me twenty dollars. In real life, you gave twenty dollars, and you paying like sixty dollars because you're paying the bare minimum. You know, and that interest rate is gonna get you real good. So I'm gonna throw it over to, to Coach John Brent, but I like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I would tell people, and, and I didn't go to college till I was 40. I actually was in my, I, I ran a business for, a, you know, over 10 years. I uh, was in the business world, made some good money, but was never happy. So what I've always told my kids now, I had one about two years ago, couldn't figure out what she wanted to do. And she was sitting at the bar and I said, you know what you need to do is find out what you love to do and what you love to do, find out a profession in what you love to do. And whatever they pay you to do that profession, you learn to live in the means of that amount of money and you will be happy. But if you try to go to school because I need to make this much money or I want this profession so I can have this much money, you're going to come home miserable in the afternoon with a whole lot of money in your account. And what you're going to do then is you're going to end up raising your standard of living up to that amount anyway. And you're going to just be miserable in the day. So I always try to tell my students now and even my family, do what you love. Who cares how much they pay you? Because at the end of the day, when you lay down at night, you want to be satisfied with what you do and just figure out a way to live within that means. Also, the last thing I'd like to say, I know we're running short on time, is I would tell kids, do not get involved in thinking America is a bad place. For some reason, in the last 15 to 20 years, we've been told by the media or and, and liberal colleges and people that we live in this bad place. Well, let me tell you this. There's no other place that they are crossing rivers on rafts. They're not floating oceans. They're not running through deserts to get to other countries. They're still trying to come here because those people over there know this is still the greatest country in the world. So do not live up to that stupidity of hype that you hear that this is some bad place. This is the greatest place in the world. And you need to not only live here and love it, but sustain it for the next generation. Okay, so coach, I like it. I like it a lot. I'm going to cover mine real quick. So real quick, what I got is for people, for me, I had no clue what the hell I wanted to do. I just didn't want to go to school no more. I was an ABC student and I wanted to ABC myself away from everything, to be honest. And I was just ready not to go to school no more. And my dad said, hey, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I plan on staying here working. And he goes, well, you can do that as long as you go to college. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? I got to go to college. So I went to college for a year and a half and went to the military. What I'll say, though, is for the high school class, first of all, the people you know right now will never be the same as you remember later. The person that's popular 10 years from now might not be the popular person. The person that's handsome might not be the person that's handsome. The person that's skinny I probably promise you will probably gain a lot of weight back, you know, after that. And some of you have hit your prime in high school and some of you are going to hit your prime 10 years after high school. And I know I've seen a lot of people that they hit their prime 10 years afterward. And for me, that was me, to be honest. So one thing I will say is follow your passion. And some of you haven't even embraced your prime yet. 
And when it comes, you're going to be like, wow, this is unbelievable. Follow your passion. So that's my best advice I can give because it's easier. And the other thing is you have not failed as long as you don't quit. So everything else is a stumbling block. So with that, I got to throw it over to the coach, uh, Coach Ingram, for any parting words he got. And I'm going to throw it over to Alex. And then we're going to get the heck out of Dodge. So, Coach, go ahead. What do you got? Okay. I just want to say I appreciate you guys getting in touch with me and giving me this opportunity. And I always like seeing former students see what they've done and everything. And like I tell you, I haven't seen you guys in 40 – well, Brent, I've seen – well, sorry, John, I've seen long sooner, but I haven't seen you except just on Facebook and all. And it's great to see you guys. And I'm really proud of what y'all been doing. Y'all have turned out real well. I appreciate that. Well, thanks, Coach Ingram. We had, we, we had a good mentor there. Thank you so much. So, Alex, what do you got? And I'm going to throw this up as you're talking, Alex. Uh, I definitely appreciate, you know, y'all giving me the opportunity to be here. It's definitely a change of pace and scenery since, you know, I'm always working. Uh, that is, a, you know, a big thing about entrepreneurship is there's no nine to five. You know, it might be six to nine, you know. It, so it, this is a little bit of change of pace. As you see, my machine's right here taking a break too, you know. Uh, there's a lot of work, you know. Like I said before, we ship internationally, so... We, we definitely stay busy, but I really appreciate it. You know, if anybody needs help, you know, when it comes to setting up your business, um, it, anything about embroidery, printing, any of that nature, and my wife and I will always help everybody. Uh, we actually get invited to go to embroidery summits to be speakers there uh, yearly. So, you know, we like to help because we went through a lot of hurdles. Uh, in a lot of rough patches, and if we can avoid other people going through the sex same patches by giving them the, the right path, you know, we're, we're more than happy to help. So look them up at woodpeckerscraft.com, and if you got some stuff you want to buy, hey, then the guys do it. Alex, take care of you on that. So, all right. So I think it's almost that time. Coach, what do you think? Man, this has been great. I, this has been one of the more uh, uh, lively ones, one that I felt so comfortable with. I'm so glad we had these two different guests on, and I hope to hope you guys keep watching. Tell somebody else to, to watch. Comment below, and we better say it quick because you got 10 seconds, Vet. Yep, from the coach. To the vet. Stay tuned, stay tuned, stay tuned. <laughs>